You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. Anyone can become an agent of innovation. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. Eric, who are we talking to this week? This is, uh, we actually made a uh, last minute decision to bring uh, these guests on because there was some news. There's a company called Simplify who we've been watching very closely. It was started by Paul Kim, who was at PIMCO, worked on Bond, New Bill Gross, that kind of thing. So he comes from that pedigree, started an ETF shop, hired some uh, interesting people. We've had a uh, we had a good Zoom call with them about uh, six months ago, and they're doing well. Uh, they're kind of up to looks like 270 million in assets. That's a 50 percent growth rate this year. And what's interesting about them is they keep making these interesting hires. And what they're doing with some of their ETFs is doing options overlays. It's part of a bigger trend of package trades, and we've seen this in the innovator and buffer products. This is becoming more popular as the market gets, uh, you know, frothier and frothier. People want some protection. And so the idea of using options is becoming a popular move. And so they recently made um, a couple big hires, including Mike Green, who a lot of people know if you're on Twitter. He used to work with Peter Thiel. He was at uh, Logica after that. And then he's famous for (laughs) having some worries about passive. Uh, he's famous for battling the Bitcoiners on Twitter. I, I give him credit. Takes a brave person to, to combat to combat some of those folks. Um, but he's just a uh, really original thinker, and uh, we've had many chats. And so I wanted to get the, this capture this young firm and their growth, and also look at these products. We've had a couple requests to talk about these downside protection type products that use options. So I, I thought that would be the idea here. And joining us, James Safer, Bloomberg Intelligence ETF analyst. This time on Trillions, Simplify. Paul, Michael, James, thanks for joining us on Trillions. Pleasure. Thank you for the invite. It's nice Can't to be wait. here. Paul, Michael, before we start with you, I want to bring James in here. Uh, James, can you talk to us? You know about this strategy, um, this option overlay strategy uh, quite a bit. Can you give us your assessment of of what the space looks like? Yeah, so Eric kind of touched on this, but right now is like a unique point in the asset management industry. There's a lot of people talking about the death of the 60-40 portfolio. We are at all-time highs in the equity markets. We are near all-time lows and just off of all-time lows in rates. So people are looking for different ways to sort of adjust their portfolios. They're not set in the 60-40 portfolios. Advisors are looking for, for ways to eke out additional return or additional yield. And a lot of the new ETFs, as Eric mentioned, are using like option overlay strategies or, as he mentioned, the buffer products which have specified downside protection but capped upside. Um, Simplified does this and it just kind of alters the the risk of the investments that you have and whatever fund you're choosing. And all of this is just a way that some people and advisors, and it's being spoken about, there's a lot of money coming into these types of strategies to kind of maybe take a few percent of the equity side, some money out of the fixed income side, and eke out additional return and without altering your risk profile too much. So it's just a lot of people just figuring out different ways to um, 
get a more uh, risk, a higher risk adjusted return or more eke out more yield. And they're doing it with option strategies. And the, the area is booming. We're, we're over $10, $10 billion in this area for the most part, uh, depending on how you slice and dice the, the marketplace, with the bulk of that being in those buffer products. Okay, Paul, you co-founded this. What did you have in your pitch deck that James left out right there? So uh, thank you for the chance to answer this question. Um, this is my third ETF platform, and, and I started at PIMCO, as Eric alluded to. Uh, my last stop was actually a principal for about five years, where I, where I helped build their business up to a little over $4 billion. Uh, but at, at Simplify, the sort of key thesis uh, that we wanted to uh, address was um, helping advisors build much more interesting portfolios and using options and derivatives to shape distributions to better address uh, very specific investment goals. So it may be goals such as risk mitigation or interesting or an uncorrelated uh, return enhancement as well as income generation. And it's a really good time from a number of fronts. So from the regulatory front, uh, the timing was very important to see the SEC modernize the regulatory framework on the use of derivatives by registered investment companies. And so what that did was basically catch up the U.S. to some of the other regulatory frameworks out in places like Europe in the usage format. Basically, what that means is now uh, companies can bring much more interesting combinations of strategies that just did not or could not fit into the 40-act wrapper so that tied with the uh, sort of demand for ETFs, the long-running advantages of ETFs, specifically uh, tax deferral, um, transparency, easier access, as well as I think individual preferences and comfort on the use of derivatives. We we have the financial crisis way in the rearview mirror at this point, and I think the comfort on the use of derivatives to help portfolios, the stigma associated with the dangers or pitfalls of derivatives, um, as well as individuals learning to trade things like single stock options and institutions looking for ways to solve portfolio challenges, i.e. how do you hedge in a world of uh, high correlations and low interest rates? Um, It's a perfect time for uh, a brand new company that focuses right in that sweet spot So, Paul, uh, that was a really good overview, and I just want to try to get more into the details of how this the ETFs work. Like I said, we've gotten a lot of requests uh, from people to go into some of the options using ETFs that offer downside protection and really to understand exactly how they tick. So let's look at SPD. This is your biggest one. It's the Simplify U.S. Equity Plus Downside Convexity ETF, which when I first saw this file, I thought was a bit of an oxymoron to have Simplify and Convexity in the name. It was the first ETF with the word convexity in the name. Um, so let's walk through what's in it, and then you tell me why. Um, so I've got the S&P 500 ETF IVV is a holding, and then it looks like there's five put options uh, with various months and various strike prices. Um, you know, It looks like they go all the way out into June 22. So just if you could walk us through what's going on here, why you picked those, and what the return stream should look like with this thing. Sure. So at the highest level, we're trying to stay true to the beta. In this case, the beta that we're offering inside of this is the S&P 500. Very popular, uh, very, very highly used for uh, U.S. large cap exposure. Um, and so we're taking that as a starting point. And then what we're doing is 
uh, if you could think of it as surgically modifying the distribution using options, but in a way that does not take away the upside or the day-to-day uh, returns of that beta. So it's going to give you pretty much S&P 500. But what we've laid on through options is one, in the case of our flagship strategy, the two-tail version, uh, spicy, we've added about a percent of the portfolio in downside hedges. So we're buying legs of deep out-of-the-money puts, which tend to be cheap and from a, at least from a probabilistic return perspective, we think they're fatter tails and real equity returns than what are priced in these options. And so they provide a really interesting way to protect the portfolio with very, very modest use of capital. And on uh, relatively unique for our strategies, we're also enhancing the upside. And I know Mike has a ton of uh, comments or opinions on this, but we think uh, basically the market structure, um, as well as all sorts of fiscal and monetary policies, make the upside a significant risk as well uh, in, in terms of keeping up with the purchasing power of that investment portfolio. So we focus on both sides and create customized scientific option overlays unique to each of the tails. And we do it in a way that mitigates the cost of, the, of that option strategy and delivers about a 1.0 beta. Okay, Mike, I wanna ask you because you came from a hedge fund background. And so I wanna talk about that, but I also just gotta ask like, what's it like for, to have Paul as your boss instead of Peter Thiel? <laughs> uh, well, we're still new in this process, but I will tell you that Paul smiles a lot more. Um, it is the, the, the reason for the move from hedge funds to the ETF space is actually exactly what Paul articulated. The rules have changed. And so products that were not able to be uh, created in the ETF space or in the retail space are now actually available in a way they just haven't been before. And you know, broadly, Eric was referring to this earlier, my career is largely uh, characterized by trying to identify how the regulatory regime is changing, how the market structure is changing. And for the first time, this is now open. And so I'm thrilled to be on board with the Simplify team, join my friend Harley Bassman, who's another you know, legend in the, uh, in the rate space in particular, who's going to be introducing similar products. Um, and I think the opportunity to be kind of first out of the gate with some really fantastic products that introduce convexity, right? And so convexity, we can talk about that dynamic, but the simplest way to think about it is that you're creating a structure that can potentially participate with more than 100% to the upside and yet avoid portions of the downside. You're just changing the shape of that distribution. That's an incredibly exciting opportunity to an adventure to be part of. When, when did you recognize, especially in the hedge fund world, that, that there was gonna be an opportunity to, to actually like enhance what ETFs were capable of? Well, so the rule change occurred, um, Paul, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was last June. Um, yeah, officially October 2020, but it's been foreshadowed for yeah. at least a number of years. Right. And so the challenge that I had in that context was I have no skill set in terms of launching ETFs. I have a history of, of participating in launching hedge funds. So to join up with an organization that is really skilled in launching those ETFs was really one of the key components. In terms of the opportunity itself, I became aware of it in early 2021 as my friend Harley Bassman made the transition over to Simplify and basically said, hey, you got to take a look at this. 
and I came to the conclusion that he was 100% right. So quick question. You guys keep talking about the rule change. The rule change you're talking about, is that is that the ability to do in-kind transactions with options? Is that is that the rule change you're referencing? It's it's not, although that one's also an important one. So in October 2020, the SEC uh, passed uh, essentially a modernized regulatory framework on the use of derivatives. It's It's been long in, in sort of uh, the pipeline and then was formally finalized and passed. And that again, modernizes the use of derivatives um, as I alluded to earlier. The, the other point you're making um, only magnifies the opportunity because not only are you permitting the use of derivatives inside of an ETF wrapper or vehicle, you're now giving it uh, a tax uh, advantage relative to maybe other ways of holding that same option, much like ETFs ha have a tax advantage in holding single, single name stocks and bonds, uh, you're now able to redeem out in-kind single name stock options, including options on ETFs. And so that creates a whole new ability to creatively think about uh, really interesting ETF strategies that are very tax efficient. Um, let me jump in here because I, over the years, there's been many downside hedged ETF. That's been a uh, area that looks good on paper, but in a bull market, a lot of them dragged. And I get your idea is to not drag as much and get as much upside. And then assuming that the more the market gets bubbly, which probably leads to Mike Green's, you know, passive bubble theory, where when you do have these downturns, they get steep, right? So this, this way you're protecting your downside. Is this the type of product that you use on top of, say, a Vanguard 500 fund? Or do you sort of, are you trying to replace that whole part of the portfolio? Um, how are you presenting this in terms of portfolio construction to advisors? Um, we are presenting it as a tool. So for some advisors, they, they do view it as a dollar for dollar replacement of their equity beta in the case, again, of our S&P strategies. And it makes sense in the context of a higher risk adjusted return potential through similar reasons that a 60-40 often outperforms 100% equity beta in that by cutting off the downside, you're, you improve the compounding and potentially improve your geometric returns, right? And so that sort of concept uh, is an attractive one for one. But in today's environment where yields are essentially at negative real rates, um, the advantages of uh, sort of having that fixed income is offset by the negative carry of that fixed income. And so in that case, if you could create some other way to directly hedge downside instead of, instead of relying on fixed income, it could actually also improve your returns. And so we may be getting a partial dollar out of your fixed income bucket as well as the equity bucket. And so those are the two main use cases that we found. But our core value proposition is that we're trying to keep and maintain that roughly one beta exposure. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. So, Mike, um, you and I have had several <laughs> discussions, both offline, over IB, and then on Philbox podcast, which if you want background on Mike's thoughts on passive and his worries about it, go 
uh, listen to that podcast. Um, he goes over all of it there. But you're you are known. Oh, you were also on Odd Lots, and I thought that was a good one too. You went over all that on that, which is a sister podcast to ours. So, but let's just for people out there, Mike's a little worried about passive uh, being a sort of problem. And now, so when I tweeted about your coming over to simplify, of course, you had some knuckleheads out there. <laughs> They're like, oh, what, what's going on here, Mike? I thought you said the s and is doomed, you know, passives a bubble. How does this, is, how, is this in tune with your thoughts on passive or is there a little bit of a conflict there? So I, I don't think there's a conflict at all. I mean, the, the point that I have continually made on passive is, is that it is changing the market structure, right? That it is influencing the behavior of markets. And we see this both in the behavior of rallies and in the behavior of sell-offs. The sell-offs are more frequent in terms of the negative skew that presents in the market. In other words, the market's propensity to crash is rising over time propensity for highly correlated sell-offs is rising over time. At the same time, the dynamics of the shift to passive away from active are creating many of the themes that we hear in the market, right? The buy the dip type mentality, et cetera. What you have by and large is a um, unthinking allocation mechanism that simply relies on Americans participating through their 401ks or people around the world participating through their retirement programs or through their um, deductions that they're making from their paychecks or regular contributions. And the rules of passive influence the behavior of the market in just the simplest form, right? The rules of passive are as simple as, did you give me cash? If so, then buy. Did you ask for cash? If so, then sell. And the work that I have focused on is the impact of introducing that systematic type of strategy on market behavior. Uh, what that really does, and what I've been very clear on, is, is that that change in the distribution of outcomes that occurs because of the influence of passive means that options are improperly priced. And so throughout my career, I've been a value investor in the context not of saying, you know, here's a super cheap company based on my estimate of future free cash flows, but instead to say, here's a super cheap instrument or security they can be purchased at a price that inaccurately reflects the future distribution of outcomes for the underlying product, right? That's what we're doing at Simplify, right? The, the ability to overlay the options and participate in the inflation that's occurring because of the passive dynamic, but to do so in a way that protects investors, both to the downside and from the risk of a market that effectively runs away from them is as I said, like it didn't exist technically before. You couldn't do it from a regulatory framework, and now suddenly you can. And the second component is, is that the options themselves don't accurately reflect these prices, creating the opportunity to do stuff that I think of as true value investing. We talked about the broad allocation ETS. We talked about the benefits of taking part of your 60% of your inequities or part of your 40% fixed income and putting them in these broader um, ETFs you guys have launched, but you guys also have launched a suite of more specific uh, targeted thematic ETFs almost using kind of the same strategy with hoping to get additional upside in like VCAR, which is RoboCar Disruption, FinTech and VFIN, um, a whole bunch of these. Can you just talk about um, how you view those being used, how you chose the strategies to launch um, and anything you have to say about them? Sure. Um, and so just just because we started off with broad beta does not mean that's sort of where we're fix, fixated on. Um, 
we're also trying to solve advisor and investor uh, demand for things like concentrated investing, which uh, often play out in thematic investing. And so what we've done is create very hyper-concentrated ETFs, again, that push the boundaries to what's permissible in a 40-act uh, vehicle, um, and also concentrate further by enhancing the upside potential by buying, buying single-name stock options, uh, mostly calls on some of our key names in the portfolios that hang on that theme. And the idea from a high-level view is kind of do what uh, Warren Buffett and Carl Icahn and other famous investors have done in their careers, which is really concentrate into a few, few key names to uh, take advantage of their um, relative growth to the universe or potential growth, and then do it in a risk measured way where we're also embedding sort of downside hedges so that if you're not exactly right with your timing, it could still have a structure that creates this really concentrated upside but much more diversified and hedge downside. So that's the interesting thing. At the very highest level, it's, it's a variance maximization structure. So you've concentrated, you have a relatively high variance names and you have a structure that captures moves when they go up and a way to sort of diversify and mitigate the downside when they don't go up as fast. Yeah, so these, these strategies can theoretically almost compound almost like uh, some of the leverage ETFs um, if you if it starts really going in those calls, uh, those upside calls get hit, which is extremely interesting from our point of view. The other thing is themes is like, I feel like it's all we've been talking about the last year. Themes are taking over sector investing because people don't want to invest in a specific sector. Like themes are easier to talk about. They're taking away some of the thunder from smart beta ETFs. Um, so it just makes complete sense to kind of packages in these other strategies. Yeah. Um, when you said the hunger for concentration, I just want to hone in on that in a minute. We are noticing this clear barbelling of flows where it's either dirt cheap beta or wild and crazy. You know, something very different. This is sort of the arc effect, I guess, if you will. Themes are right in there. Um, this th Is this because portfolios are barbelling? People are just, they're going to, they're going to have this cheap base and then sort of decorate it with what we t tend to refer to as hot sauce. I mean, is that what you're finding from advisors? Is that why you're, in fact, in your area, you have the barbell going right there uh, in terms of the product line? Well, so I, I would actually um, take a stab at that. I think, again, for me, part of the interesting dynamic that we're seeing with theme stocks, et cetera, is, is that it's a reflection of the market fragility dynamics we're talking about, right? So in many of these situations, the core buyers and holders of these theme stocks are going to be the vanguards and black rocks of the world. The question is, can you gain increased convexity or rocket fuel to an exposure because you decide to make a concentrated bet in that area, right? And the ability to articulate that and to do so in a manner that is easily accessible and tradable from an RAA framework, it's tough to see that as not offering value to the community. Just before we, we move on to the limitations, I think Joel's going to ask about limitations. Paul, um, back to the IVV and then the puts and that tail risk hedge. Yep. Um, have you tested this in environments and do you know about how much of the market downturn you save? Like, do you have any way to quantify what you're saving there? Because the Bruce Bond over at Innovator, he has these exact metrics. You know, you'll 
you'll uh, have to stomach the first 5%, but then after that, we'll cover, you know, he's very clear on this is exactly what you get. How do you answer that question to somebody who's like, well, how much will this save me if the market tanks? So you can't get a precise uh, forward-looking number, but there's certainly a lot of historical episodes going back way to the you know periods like the Great Depression, um, where you could estimate um, sort of drawdowns and sort of the limits and timing of those drawdowns. Um, in a nutshell, by buying very deep out of the money puts, they act as a shock absorber, almost like a rubber band. It's it's hard to forecast exactly what that force is, but it's it's a very powerful force, and uh, that, which is a term convexity, right? Gamma and equity terms. It basically, at the further and faster you fall and higher the implied vols go up, these options significantly increase in uh, value. And so if you look back at a very generic 1%, of your portfolio in sort of a 30% put. This is not our strategy, but I'm just talking generically. That going into uh, March, that 1% would have done more than the work of a 40% allocation to long treasuries. So a very modest amount of uh, out of the money puts effectively protects the entire portfolio or has the potential to protect the entire portfolio as a full on hard duration allocation to the longest uh, treasuries out there. Um, that's powerful, right? That really speaks to how much uh, sort of a help these puts can have. The drawback is constructing it in the right way and having a systematic approach that makes sure you're not overspending on protection and buying the right strikes and looking for opportunities where options are cheap. Okay, Michael, what are the limitations or the or the potential limitations of the strategy? Well, I think Paul just hit on one of them, right? The history doesn't repeat, it rhymes. And so we're never gonna know exactly what the performance is of a derivative overlay strategy. It's gonna depend on where volatility rises. It's gonna depend on the shape of the volatility surface or the curve that, it, that exists in the volatility space. Uh, it's going to depend on the speed of the decline, et cetera, right? So these are all factors that you have to consider when you're thinking about protecting a portfolio or how to manage against that. And then there's the further issue that you have of, you know, is the picture of the past an accurate representation? When we went through 2007, 2008, passive strategies were roughly 15% of the market. Today, they're somewhere in the neighborhood of 45% to 50% and more than half of all the managed assets. And so Understanding those differences means that you're never going to have perfect insight. And, and candidly, I have not seen the claims of we'll do exactly this protection, et cetera, but I would challenge the ability to make that type of statement. Um, there is a secondary benefit, though, as you move away from using interest rates to protect your portfolio, what you're really relying on with the interest rate dynamic is the Fed's reaction function. Is the central bank going to cut interest rates in reaction to a decline in equity prices? All right, that's a relatively recent phenomenon in terms of markets. It really only began to emerge in 1998 in the aftermath of long-term capital management and the Asian financial crisis. Brief episode of it in 1987 with the crash of 87. But here you're talking about doing something differently because if you're embedding derivatives that are tied directly to the stock market, so puts on the S&P 500, for example, you have a reduced level of, of what in the industry is referred to as basis risk or the risk that the protection that you bought in your portfolio doesn't actually protect your portfolio because it's not directly tied to it, right? 
So there's some improvement and there's some increase in uncertainty around, around other aspects of it. Ultimately, I don't think people have a choice because what we've seen is the Fed has so aggressively targeted market sell-offs and risk-off events with the policy of cutting interest rates that we've now ended up at a point where those bonds offer almost no prospect of reasonable return. And you're effectively buying you know, a, uh, a, a synthetic put on your equity portfolio when you buy a 10-year treasury or a 30-year treasury with significant uncertainty as to whether that's going to deliver the return profile that you're hoping for. All right. I, I want to shift a little bit to this sort of ambition that you guys have. Uh, you know, it's not just the products that you've come out with and the hires that you've made. I've seen a, a really interesting filings from Simplify. I know you can't talk about them, so I'll throw them all out there for the listener and then just let you comment on however you want. You have a filing for a CDX ETF. This is a basically a credit default swap ETF. That term has a lot of, uh, you know, people have a lot of feelings when they hear that, although there was one tried before. You have an equity plus Bitcoin ETF. You have a inverse vol ETF, another one that <laughs> gets people the feels right there. Um, although it's not all the way one-time inverse. I think it's half or 20.25% inflation convexity, gold convexity. I mean, you really have this interesting arsenal of products in the pipeline that really puts you on on a trajectory to be almost like the alternative issuer. You know, is that is that your goal here is to is to really own that spot? Um, what's the grand vision here? So I think it's one level higher than that, which uh, alternatives tend to be a smaller portion of a portfolio, right? So what, what we're really trying to do is create either improved betas or really take existing betas, deep public accessible betas, and turning them into either return generators or, or, or sort of better building blocks for portfolios. And again, in the context of a 40-year, 60-40 uh, paradigm that's embedded itself in every sort of retirement uh, channel out there, we want to provide an alternative way to think about asset allocation that can navigate uh, the road ahead. So if you think about views on either extreme inflation or deflation, uh, very few ETF platforms, in my view, have a, a sort of a significant offering that works when rates go up or when inflation picks up, as an example, right? And also very few platforms offer sort of exposure to uh, ways of navigating times when risk assets, i.e. short vol assets, sell off. So can we offer things that are much more long volatility that take the other side, but do it in a way that can be put into a portfolio that has a a positive expected value and can help meet investors' returns. And so that's sort of how I, we view uh, the building blocks. It's not so much, again, let's go for a 10 or 20% slice of somebody's portfolio and give something interesting. It's really, let's reimagine and, and create another path for much more interesting asset allocation frameworks and give advisors that tool that before have never been accessible, even to very large advisors things that require things like ISDAs, right? Um, which even um, relatively large hedge funds may not have access to uh, create interesting, again, uh, strategies that take advantage of capital efficiency, balance sheet efficiency, a really interesting and thoughtful use of leverage in a very risk focused way. So those are all the things that we have 
down the road and you're, you're starting to see the filings and sort of hinting at where we're trying to take this place. By the way, Joel, uh, this is, you know, when people are like, oh, the ETFs are a bubble. And I'm like, they kind of equate ETFs with beta. I'm like, no, they actually make ETFs to capitalize on the bubble bursting or people, I think, sometimes forget that. It's really fascinating that all this stuff is being put into this structure. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a wrapper around a wrapper. I, I would say, uh, building on what Eric just said, Michael Burry talked about passive bubble ETF and investing in small cap values specifically, and then cited a couple of names you invested in, like GameStop and uh, other other names that were like 30% passively owned, which is way higher than the, the average. So it just shows that a lot of times, even extremely smart investors don't have a true understanding of exactly what ETFs and passive investing or what we call passive investing, I should say, because there's a, there's a spectrum, but there's definitely a big gap in this understanding, even among super intelligent investors. James, I, I, I just wanted to um, emphasize the point that you were making there, right? Which is when you look at a lot of the theme stocks or you look at a lot of the behavior that's happened in markets, it tends to have happened in these stocks that have high concentrations of ownership, whether that's because there are significant option quantities that are outstanding against them or whether there are passive players who perversely choose to add to stuff effectively as new money comes in, they'll buy more of something as it goes higher, reinforcing momentum type characteristics. Again, those are the opportunities that we think we have the, the, the chance to take advantage of that really haven't existed in the markets in the past. And simultaneously, that means that we can allow investors to participate in what feels like craziness to us, but also feel some degree of protection to the downside. So, Michael, does that mean that you could potentially get into a place where, where like right now you're using sort of broader indexes, but you could get into one where you're customizing and doing so based on trends that you're seeing in certain places? You know, it's difficult to talk about the, the product development framework um, other than what's already been filed. Uh, Eric referred to a couple of these things. What I hope Simplify becomes known for is actually something that Paul alluded to before, which is the thoughtful construction of these products and the appropriate use of leverage. So, for example, a short volatility ETF, people are obviously familiar with products like XIV that um, you know blew up quite spectacularly in February of 2018. They're also familiar with two times or three times levered S&P type products or, you know, Russell products, et cetera. What you often find with those is, is that they were created, in my view, without a, 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 um, a significant amount of thought behind, should we do this? Is this appropriate for investors? Is this the right degree of leverage? When you create products that have the linear payouts that those products historically have had, and all you're doing is attaching significant leverage to it, you actually increase the odds of events like the February 5th, 2018 Volmageddon, where a very popular two plus billion dollar ETF went to zero in a single day, right? Or effectively to zero in a single day. Um, we can do better than that. And we can be much more thoughtful about how to appropriately construct these products. We're not trying to create the, you know, three, four, 500, 600% return things. We're trying to replace products in people's portfolios that no longer work. For example, bonds. So, Paul, it sounds like you have things on a whiteboard that are really exciting. And then there's some other things on the other side of the whiteboard that might be farther away. And I'm, I'm curious, like, like, what you know, the name of your company is Simplify. How many products 
do you think you'll ultimately have here? I get a lot of complaints internally on how fast we're moving. Uh, we have nine uh, currently and have another six on docket and probably another six waiting right beyond that. So I could easily see 30 or 40 ETFs and, you know, in a couple of years, um, which most being very, uh, very, very unique and solving very, very big problems for advisors. And, and that's sort of the sort of the urgency behind how, how aggressive we're trying to tackle this, because it feels like there's this window of opportunity to move fast, to just feed into that creativity and opportunity and really address some of the biggest challenges that we feel are not being addressed properly today. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Mike Green, one thing you said on the last time we were on the podcast at Phil's, uh, Phil's podcast was, and it stuck with me, you said that the government and, and just in general, they now look at the stock market as America's retirement savings. And Yellen said something along the lines of how active bond mutual funds were going to have to unload all these bonds in the middle of March, and it was going to be fire sale. And she kind of alluded, that's why they stepped in, which was part of my hunch it seems like the whole mutual fund industry, active and passive, is the new too big to fail. Thoughts? Unfortunately, I think that's right. And, and you know, I referred to this earlier that the Federal Reserve has taken a much more active role in, quote unquote, protecting the market. Right. So the reaction function to declines has become more aggressive um, over time and it has become quicker to be instituted, right? On, in 2000, we saw a dramatic market decline with relatively limited intervention. By the time we got to 2020, you know, the, within days and weeks of the market decline beginning, the Federal Reserve was rolling out unprecedented programs, right? Part of the reason why that's happening is to say the Fed has relied in the post-2008, post-GFC environment on the wealth effect to stimulate the economy, recognizing that a sizable and growing fraction of the U.S. population relies on self-directed retirement accounts to provide for extended retirements, etc. I don't know that there is any way out of that, but the tools that are becoming the tools that they have available are becoming fewer and fewer. Right, so the ability to cut interest rates from the six percent level in two thousand or I'm sorry, 2007, and we were at 9% in 1990, right? That's now largely gone. We can't cut those interest rates much further from zero without it becoming potentially contractionary because it becomes effectively a tax on wealth. So the, the need for investors to take the steps to protect their portfolios 
in my view, is actually growing. At the same time, of course, that the confidence in the Fed's ability to protect the markets through you know, various memes of Fed printer goes burr, et cetera, is growing higher and higher and higher, right? People have completely forgotten that the market could crash as aggressively as it did in March of 2020. Now the perception is you can't have any type of decline uh, of, of you know, any sustained period or severity. It is it is fascinating. Um, the, the the more I I just think and think about it, I'm like, yeah. And plus, all the bo- it's all boomer retirement money, and the boomers have all the power. And there's a revolving door. I it it I don't want to go conspiracy theory, but it just seems like they they're just not gonna let the market go down. It's now almost like socialized in a weird way where they have to have it stay up so people can take their retirement money out. The point of the stock market, which is supposed to be not really that bankable, you know, you're supposed to be risky, has become the they shaped it to be something that is more reliable. And now there's so much money in it and it's hard to see where it ends. Well, I, 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 I think uh, I think Eric's going to go to Bitcoin Island. There. <laughs> we were waiting. We were waiting. He pivoted. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I, Somebody, I, I think that's... Welcome to crypto. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, Joel's joke about Bitcoin Island. I mean, I've, I've said this elsewhere and I'll, I'll you know, continue to stand behind it, that people understand that the system is growing increasingly fragile and growing increasingly dependent on the need to keep stability, right? And so this plays right into the Hyman Minsky type framework of the more you create stability, the more you build fragility. The system, when it breaks, becomes catastrophic. We can't possibly know when that's going to occur, but all I can do is encourage people to recognize that the message that they get from the stock market, right? The idea that there's the expectations channel and the smartest and brightest minds in America are speculating in stocks and telling you the forward expected returns associated with the U.S. economy and income prospects, et cetera. That's just not true in the presence of systematic strategies that literally are as simple as, did you give me cash? If so, then buy, right? And that is really what you know, catches my imagination in terms of the opportunity to build a, a better solution for investors and a set of tools that simplify the process for investment advisors that are trying to understand how to protect their portfolios, both on a right tail outcome and on a left tail outcome. I like how you slipped in simplified there, Michael. That was good it's, product placement. I, but uh, yeah, how you. much does this? How much does this actually help understand and explain the Bitcoin phenomenon? Right? Of like, if there's this inherent feeling that things are getting more fragile, like here's this alternative asset that no one's ever seen before. That's better than nothing else, right? Yeah. Shouldn't this make you pro Bitcoin, Mike? Um, when you say should it make me pro Bitcoin so so I just want to emphasize my view on Bitcoin is not whether it is going to go up or down in the short term right my view on Bitcoin is that it is distracting people from um, participating in a robust discussion around how to fix the system the minute you choose an exit voice right which Candidly, has happened historically before, right? The 19th century was largely about immigrants, emigrants from Europe and the rest of the world coming to the new world in order to buy a better future for themselves, taking an exit voice from, you know, the corrupt societies that they were part of, right? Today, you see people trying to do that same thing without changing their geographic location. And it just doesn't work that way, 
You can separate yourself from authoritarianism and danger by physically removing yourself and taking yourself an ocean away onto a protected continent. You can't do that by moving your bank account, right? It just, it, it's not an accurate representation or a realistic way to step out of the system. And further, it doesn't create the opportunity for building something better. That's my complaint about Bitcoin. Paul, last question for you. Favorite ETF ticker other than your own? Um, I've always liked PBNJ. I don't know. Like tickers like that are fun. Um, and, and and not a direct competitor either, which okay, is great. Good. There you go. And Michael, what is Peter Thiel's favorite ETF ticker? I have no idea. <laughs> How about yours? Um, XIV. <laughs> Legend. People still tweet about it. I mean, if you if you look dollar sign XIV, there's probably five six tweets a day. People miss that thing. Yeah, it went I, out well, in a blaze I, of glory. I, I, I would love the opportunity to have another shot at that, but um, instead uh, we'll come at it from a different angle. Paul, Michael, James, thanks for joining us on Trillions. Thank you, guys. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. You can find James at J-S-E-Y-F-F. For more on Simplify, go to simplify.us. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcast. Bye. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com.